So uh, we're, we're studying Parashat Bishalach, and I thought it would be uh, an interesting exploration to uh, take a look at the Shirat there's, there's so much in Parashat Bishalach, I had mentioned in, even on Shabbat, that, um, that there is an inordinate number of uh, topics in Parashat Bishalach to, to talk about in any, uh, in any class, because it's, um, it's so full of different, uh, different subjects. You have the the exodus, you have the conflict with Paro, you have, of course, this, the, the, uh, the traversing of the sea, you have the Shiratayam, you have the Man, you have Amalek, you have, there, there's just so many different components of the, uh, so many different subjects that are touched upon in the parasha. It's a little bit of a longish parasha, but uh, also just a, uh, a multifaceted one. So it's difficult to identify a, uh, a specific subject and narrow it down to one subject and really feel like you've done justice to the parasha. So I'm not even going to try to do that, but I thought that what might be interesting is I've been trying to add content to our menu that we haven't really explored in the past. And I don't really think we've ever looked at Shiratayam in any uh, detail. So I thought it might be interesting to do that. And I, maybe if we have some extra time uh, to also talk a little bit about the man. Um, only because I think that the Parashataman is, uh, is, is a good illustration of something which can be of great value but also uh, greatly misunderstood. So it's worth talking about if we get to it. I, I hope we will. Um, but let's, let's have modest. Uh, when, we, when we expect less, uh, we, we have less risk of disappointment. So let's, uh, let's try to do our... Uh, the first things first. So let's start with Shiratayam. I, I think that it's something that um, it behooves us to, uh, uh, to, to understand better because, simply because we read it so often uh, every day if we're praying Shacharit and certainly on Shabbat at the very least uh, when we sing it, we should have an idea of what we're saying. And perhaps this is a, uh, perhaps it's a little bit early. You'll say, well, it's two months before Pesach. It's a little early to get into talking about, uh, talking about the uh, Kriyat Yam Suf. But even on Pesach, I don't recall, even though the seventh day of Pesach is the day that we celebrate Kriyat uh, Yam Suf, I don't recall ever really studying the, the, this chapter so closely. So um, it, there is an introduction to Shirat Yam that we read when we, when we begin it um, that, is, uh, that is appended in the Sidur to the actual, the actual song itself. Which is Vayar Yisrael, which is Vayosh Hashem Vayom Ohet Yisrael Miad Mitzrayim. This is actually the end of chapter 14 of the book of Shemot. Vayosh Hashem Vayom Ohet Yisrael Miad Mitzrayim, Vayar Yisrael Mitzrayim Mitzrayim Mitzrayim. So Hashem saved on that day Yisrael from Mitzrayim. And the Jews saw the Mitzrayim Metal Sefatayam, dead on the, um, on the bank of the, uh, of the sea. Vayar Yisrael Tayyad Gedolah Shirasad Onai B'Mitzrayim. The Jews saw the great hand that Hashem had done in Egypt. And the people feared God and they trusted in Hashem and Moshe, his servant. Now, I just wanted to make one tiny little point of grammar that's important to make here. Um, it's just very briefly. The word is Vayireu. You have to put an emphasis. There is a, um, there's a, there are two yuds there because you have to emphasize the Yireu. If you say Vayireu, Ha'am, it sounds like you're saying the people saw Hashem. It sounds like you're saying that the people saw Hashem, which of course would be a blasphemous suggestion and definitely not correct. means that they feared Hashem. It actually changes the meaning, but it's very important to say uh, 
But the, as opposed to the seeing, it's two different Shorashim in Hebrew. One Shorash is Resh Aleph Hey, which means to see, and one of them is Yud Resh Aleph, which means to fear. And the idea is that they had awe of Hashem. And not only did they have awe of Hashem, Vayaminu Bashem of Moshe Abdo, they trusted in Hashem and in Moshe because they saw the they finally saw the final, basically the ultimate statement of God's greatness. At, uh, at the splitting of the sea. Now, there's a, a very interesting uh, book that I read recently uh, that um, I was uh, part of a panel discussion of a book by somebody by the name of Joshua Berman, who is a, he actually lives in Israel right now, but he, he originally is from the States, and um, he's a, uh, an academic and a rabbi. So he wrote a book where he talks about uh, conflicts or issues that are raised purported contradictions, conflicts between the Torah's account of certain historical matters and uh, what we know from archaeology and from history. Very interesting book. How to reconcile some of the modern uh, findings of, uh, uh, of uh, biblical research with uh, traditional understandings. And he's, of course, a traditional rabbi, so he's coming from the perspective of a believer in the Torah as well as an academic uh, with you know a fully credentialed academics, a very interesting uh, books that he wrote. And that one book that I read of, read of his, he addresses the uh, he addresses the um, the uh, a lot about the uh, the Exodus, the story of the Exodus, and the um, and the account that's provided in the in the Torah as opposed to the account provided in uh, you know or what we have of archaeological evidence related to Egypt of that time. One of the very interesting things that he speaks about, and it's, I'm not going to be able to go into all the details now, but I just thought it was interesting, is that he talks about how the song at the sea. Um, has so many parallels in Egyptian culture that it is clear, pretty clearly, pretty obviously, if you compare the songs glorifying the Pharaoh, which was a, a Pharaoh immediately preceding the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, there were songs glorifying the Pharaoh in his battle that, that almost sound word for word. It's clearly like a cover of the song um, or a, uh, a remake of the song that was um, glorifying the Pharaoh and repurposed to glorification of Hashem. And uh, even the same phraseology, the same descriptions, the same kind of a style, the same things are highlighted, but downplaying the human power and emphasizing the divine power. So it's an interesting, he's written some interesting material on this and uh, comparing the Song at the Sea to Egyptian um, Pharaoh glorification. Even the term Yada Gedola. The, or uh, or Zohanituya, the, uh, the outstretched arm and the powerful hand, these were terms that they would associate with the Pharaoh, which is why uh, they're always taken and used to, to uh, describe Hashem as if, you know, to say that the Pharaoh is not the real source of power, but it's really God and that the whole story of the Exodus is a story of demonstrating that Hashem is the ultimate authority and the ultimate power, not the human leader that appears to be the one in the driver's seat of the world. So it's an interesting article, that, an interesting book, an interesting chapter in that book where he discusses this. But um, uh, it's, so if you ever have the opportunity to look that up, you might find it interesting you know, it's, uh, uh, to explore. In any case, he's so getting into the song itself. Not, I, I don't remember enough of the details of what he said about the song to give you much more, but, I re, but it was very interesting how he laid out the parallels between the, um, the two uh, songs and how the, the, the one about Hashem is clearly trying to, uh, trying to denigrate or reject the glorification of human power in the, uh, in the Egyptian songs. But in any case, 
Az Yashir Moshe of Israel. Of course, the question is, how did Moshe Rabbeinu and Bnei Israel at the same exact time come up with the same lyrics and the same words? So a simple reading, there is a Midrash that says that they all broke out in song simultaneously and they all came up with the same idea. They were all inspired prophetically to say the same things. The simple reading, of course, is that Moshe Rabbeinu taught them the song. In other words, he said the words and they repeated after him um, and, and that he led them in song. I sing to Hashem. Because he has been greatly exalted, ge'e is to be proud, to be superior, to be exalted. Now, one of the things that I wanted to point out anyway, even before I was, uh, even before I came across the uh, the, the Rabbi Dr. Berman's uh, work on this, that w- even without the uh, the uh, correlation to anything Egyptian, we can just tell here that the glorification of God is being juxtaposed, is being contrasted with the downfall of the symbols of the power of Egypt. He cast the horse and its rider into the sea. In other words, it's making it what would seem to you to be a very imposing and very intimidating rider on a horse as you are trying to escape slavery. To God, he simply cast him into the sea like you would throw a stone into the sea. There was, it was a nothing. Very difficult pasuk to translate with lots of different interpretations as to what it means. But uh, does, it, does it mean that uh, my strength and uh, the, the interpretations vary? Like Rashi says that what it means is my strength and my song, meaning my strength and my glory are God. That's one way of interpreting it. Um, the, way that the, uh, the way that the Ibn Ezra uh, interprets it as a little bit differently than that. He says that um, he goes through a couple of different readings of it um, that he uh, that he rejects or that he has issues with, and then in the end he says what it really means is ozi v'zimrat ozi that my strength and the song of my strength is God, meaning to say that uh, that even though my enemy fell down, my real strength and that to which I attribute strength and power is not myself. It's not that I won. It's not that the my enemy has fallen and that raises me up. It's really coming from the source, really God. And he was my salvation. This is my God, my, this, which again, Eli, El means power. Like uh, uh, when we say, Bene uh, Elim. The sons of the powerful. Elim are people that have power, influence. Okay, so Ze'eli, when we speak about God as El, we mean God as the source of power. Ze'eli my, my, is the source of strength. Ve'anveu. What does the word ve'anveu really mean? So the pshat, the simple me- meaning of uh, neve is a home. Or an abode that would be created. This is the God of my father, and I will exalt him. The way that Unculus translates it, the way that Ibn Ezra translates it is, means that I will create a home for God. Now, obviously, God doesn't need a home, but meaning I will create a sanctuary to glorify God. So the concept is that from seeing the downfall of what was so glorious and powerful and intimidating and overwhelming, the majesty of Egypt, comes a sense that, no, we really, what we really need to create, and if you think about it, what is Egyptian society and what is Egyptian culture all about and all the pyramids and everything, what do they all point to? They all point to the greatness of the Egyptian people, the greatness of the Egyptian leaders, the greatness of 
the Egyptian gods, which really they felt were embodied in their leaders as they deified and they deified their uh, their pharaohs and their leaders too. So the idea that all of the the whole Egyptian infrastructure ultimately was the glorification of human power and greatness mainly embodied in the pharaohs actually because they had these pyramids even that they were buried if you know the, what the pyramids were for not like the things that the the jewish people did not build the pyramids it's a common myth i'm sorry to dispel that uh myth for those who believe in it hopefully everyone by now knows that that's not the case but it's, it was a very common myth that's been repeated again and again for hundreds of years even by some very important people that should have known better i'm going to leave that aside but the uh, but base but we know for a fact that the pyramids were not built by the Jews. They had nothing to do with the Jews. The what the Jews were building was they were building storehouses, and the pyramids were not storehouses. The pyramids were actually tombs for pharaohs. They were very elaborate tombs filled with treasures and lots of booby traps, so nobody could break in and abscond away with those treasures. Even though they didn't always work, because a lot of times they robbed those the pyramids anyway. Probably it was an inside job. Who knows? But in any case, they, um, they, the pyramids were meant to glorify the pharaohs even in death, as if to say that their greatness was unending. And, uh, and so the, the downfall of the Egyptian structure of power and the glorification of man, which holds out the hope to every person that they too can partake of it and be great, be great in that illusory way, which is the aggrandizement of a person, that has fallen. And instead we're going to build the real strength is the power of God. And we're going to create a structure. We're going to create an edifice. We're going to create some kind of a place, a home that glorifies God instead of human beings. And as I had, I've mentioned in the past, the idea on Hanukkah had mentioned I think I wrote an, an article, I think it went out in the uh, SBM uh, publication about the home, the role of the home, that the home is a place that puts us at the center and makes us feel great. We, our environment, our home environment is the environment that's under our control where we uh, express our mastery of that which is in our domain and we limit the entrance into our home and we decide the organization of our home and uh, we uh, we own our home, and when when something happens to someone's house, it's almost as if, and if God forbid, a natural disaster affects someone's home, they feel almost like their uh, you know their majesty has been compromised, like their sense of control and mastery over the environment that the home gives them has been compromised. You feel much more naked and much more vulnerable when you're outside, and that's actually the idea of the sukkah. The idea of the sukkah is to get away from a structure that is centered on aggrandizement of human beings and putting them at the, you know, as the point of focus and instead moving us into an environment where God is the focus. That's the idea of the sukkah. That's the idea of the Bet HaMikdash. And that's as opposed to a society that creates a whole infrastructure to maintain the illusion that human beings are really ultimately in control. And Kriyat Yamsuf was the greatest example and oftentimes, actually, it really is natural disasters that are the greatest example of uh, God's mastery of the universe. Because when, um, when extreme weather is one thing that human beings have a very limited ability to control. I guess also pandemics that spread. But uh, sim- they're, they're both uh, of, of a similar 
kind because they are natural events that are not within our, our control the way that ordinary events Ordinary natural events we can deal with, but extreme natural events we have more difficulty. They remind us that we're not ultimately in control, whether it be rain or snow like we're experiencing right now. But of course, in an extreme circumstance where there's flooding, God forbid, or hurricanes or tornadoes, really remind us uh, that we're not in absolute control of our environment and put us in our place. And here that's an, there's an example of that in Kriyat Yamsuf, that basically the ocean is something that is absolutely human beings... Uh, are at a at a loss to stand before the vastness of the ocean. It's a, it's a, it's almost incredible. We know more about what exists in deep space than we know about what exists at the bottom of the oceans on our planet, because we can't access the uh, deepest reaches of the oceans on our planet. So water is really something that we have a very limited ability to feel. Uh, control over because it can easily overpower us and that's what this is about these majestic chariots of the pharaoh and his army God threw them into the ocean the choice ones of his, of his officers to they just drowned in the yamsuf the depths covered them they fell into the depths they 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 um, descended into the depths of the sea, Kimoavan like a rock. So the contrast here with the glory of the Egyptian power structure, the army, the chariots, those whom you thought were invincible, your masters, disappearing into the depths of the sea, is the imagery that's being. Uh, uh, that's being put before us is this contrast and then immediately we go we switch back to God's glory again so you notice that the poem switches back and forth from that's almost the first line is almost like laying out the structure of the entire song because it says I'm glorifying God he threw he threw the horse and its rider into the sea and then we praise God and say we're going to make a home for him and then we describe, again, Hashem casting the great ones of Egypt into the sea. Yeminecha Hashem nedari bakoach. Your right hand, Hashem, is, is a nedari bakoach, is exalted, you could say, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in strength. Yeminecha Hashem oyev. Your right hand, Hashem, crushes the enemy. Okay, so... And then, in your great superiority, you will destroy those who stand up, meaning those who oppose you. You will send out your anger, and they'll be consumed like straw. It's using the metaphor of like a, uh, in this case, like a fire. In other words, the anger is like a fire, and that fire will consume the, uh, will consume the enemies. So, the idea that nothing can withstand God's power, by the wind of your apecha, literally is like your, uh, your nose, but obviously it's not literal. The water piled up. It became like a, uh, like flowing, it was nednozlim, really no, normally nozlim, they became kemoned. Ned is something which is like a wall, 
but nozlim is flowing liquid. So it says, Nitzibu chemoned nozlim. The liquid became like a wall. The depths were frozen in the heart of the sea. So in other words, this is again showing God's mastery over nature. And no matter how great Paro and his army is, they cannot stand up against the infinite power of God. Amar Oyev, the, the, the wicked person says, Erdof asiga chalek shalal. I'm going to chase. I'm going to catch them. I'm going to split up the treasure that I capture. Tim I will fill my soul with them. Meaning to say that, well, you know, whatever I steal from them or meaning with the satisfaction of capturing them. I will take out my sword and my hand will destroy them. So what do we see here? Still the fantasy of human dominion is driving the Egyptians, drives them into actually their own self-destruction, their obsession with the ability to reassert. Because what happened here, I spoke about it on Shabbat actually, you know, Esther in my speech, this past Shabbat, that the, the person, the stubbornness, the insistence that if they held their ground, they would be able to succeed that sense that there was no there was no consideration of another possibility there wasn't any humility to take a step back and correct the direction that they had embarked upon they had to prove themselves right they couldn't take the fact that they had lost they couldn't take the fact they had been defeated and that their fantasy of dominion had been compromised or had been falsified they had to prove that they could vanquish the jews you blew with your wind, and they were covered by the sea. They sunk like lead into the mighty waters, or some people say, the mighty people sunk like lead. Um, there's two different ways of interpreting it. The way that the Pasuk is in our Chumashim, sounds more like the way that Rashi has, I think Rashi has it that way. That uh, it means that what sunk in the water were the Adirim. That the Adirim are the people. But another way of reading it is Bimayim Adirim means the mighty waters into which they sunk. In either case, that the, uh, the contrast of their might versus God's might. Mikamocha Ba'elim Hashem, who is like unto you Ba'elim Hashem among the powerful. Mikamocha Nedar Bakodesh, who is, who has, who is, great in, in holiness. He is too awesome to praise. means a person will be afraid to praise you. And um, Rashi says, A person will be afraid to speak of the praises of God because it will be insufficient. It won't be able to do justice to them. That's what it means, Noatilot. Noatilot means too awesome for the praises, meaning to say that we would feel inadequate to try to praise God. Osefela, he does wonders. Now, the way that Ibn Ezra has here is anybody who praises God is afraid. That still we're obligated to praise God. In other words, Osefela means God does wonders, so therefore we're obligated to recognize, acknowledge, his greatness, but at the same time, we always recognize that our 
uh, our speaking, our praising, our telling of the greatness of God is going to be limited. It's going to be insufficient to the task. So on one hand, we must do it because if we don't praise God and acknowledge the greatness of God, we won't have a relationship with him at all and we'll be lost. We won't have a concept of God. But on the other hand, if we, fant- if we fantasize, if we falsely believe that our praises are sufficient and actually, uh, actually reflect the greatness of God accurately, so then we're doing an injustice to God as well. So we have to, uh, we have to balance praising God with the recognition that our praise is insufficient. That's why, I believe that's why at the end of Pesuket de Zimra, what do we end in the morning Pesuket de May your name be praised on and on. Meaning even though we, uh, uh, we praise God in the Pesuket de Zimra, we, we might feel that once you start praising God, it has to be infinite because how can you ever stop? Because you're never going to really exhaust the, uh, the extent of God's greatness. And so if you stop, it's as if you're saying you're done now. You know, so that would be in, that would be inappropriate. So we acknowledge the that although we're stopping because we're only human beings and we have to stop at some point, there's really no limit to what can be expressed there. And that's what it means. God is too awesome for praise. You turned your right hand. The land swallowed them up. You led in your kindness the nation that you. Say that you redeemed. You you guide them in your strength. So now we get to what was the goal of all of this? In other words, what was the objective of all of this? This comes out now. In other words, why did God take revenge on the Egyptians in such a dramatic and extreme way? Why was it that God intervened in this way um, to make such a spectacle? It was It was in order to guide, uh, and sometimes, like uh, like the Ibn Ezra will say that Lashon Avar He says that the language of the past is used for the future here, meaning that it's uh, it's it's written in the past tense in Hebrew, but really it means he, you will lead them in your kindness and you will guide them in your strength to your holy place. Now, the the question of what the holy place means does that mean Eretz Israel? And Yerushalayim, is that a reference to Har Sinai? Different, um, different uh, uh, commentaries have a different interpretation of exactly which Neve Kochecha, which holy abode is being referred to here. But the idea is that the goal... Now remember, what, what, what did it say in the beginning of the song? Ze Eli ve'anvehu. This is my God and I will make a place for him. I will make a home and abode for him. And here it's saying... We're going back to that same word, oz, that we see again and again. Strength is one of the words that repeats again and again in Shirat Hayam. That in your strength, you guide them to your holy place, either meaning Har Sinai or the Bet HaMikdash ultimately, but the point being that there's, an, there's a sacred purpose here, which is to create a nation that will serve God, that will be... Uh, uh, ambassadors of God to the world that will be the ones who will represent God's presence um, on this planet. That's what it means, El Neve Kochecha. Whether it means in the receiving of the Torah or it means in the Bet HaMikdash, the idea is that this, all of these events, see, it's one of the things that, um, that uh, is important to understand, that Hashem doesn't just intervene in history in these ways in order to 
address injustice and to stop persecution because there's lots of injustice and persecution and oppression being uh, committed all the time uh, in all uh, you know all corners of the earth so that God doesn't intervene to stop that the point isn't just that God stops injustice it's really human beings that have to uh, that are responsible for that but what God does is he's using the in, he's using this example of injustice he's using the example of the abuse of, of power by the Egyptians. He's using an example of the dehumanization of the, uh, of the Jews by the Egyptians. He's using an example of the deifying of human power and human leaders that's exemplified by the Egyptians in order to teach the Jewish people about God to get them on the path to fulfilling the mission really of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov of sanctifying God's name in the world, of studying the ways of God and exemplifying the ways of God for the world and proclaiming God's existence to the world. This goal is what makes Yitzhak Mitzrayim unique. If it were just another case of oppression, one nation oppressing another, that's human history in a nutshell, again and again. It's just a cycle of who's oppressing whom and who's trying to lord over whom. Uh, you know, from uh, one generation to the next. What makes Yitzhak Mitzrayim unique is that this circumstance was exploited, so to speak, by God as the ultimate teachable moment um, to, uh, to elevate the Jewish people's consciousness of God and prepare them for their holy mission in the world. And that's what it means. You're leading your nation that you redeem. The redemption is not just the removal of the dominion of Paro, but it is being able to embrace a new way of life, a way of life that sees the order in the world doesn't come from the bureaucracy of Paro and from the might of Paro or from the confidence and the ego of Paro that holds it together. The order in the world comes from God's design and God's plan. And that's really what's being taught to them here in ultimately in Kriyat Yamsuf more than anything else. Sham because uh, the because well I'll I'll come back to that at the end but sham uamim yirgazun the nations of the world here and they are afraid chil achaz yoshevet pelashet the people of of uh, of uh, the plishtim are are shaking in their boots as nivalu alufei edom the princes of edom are overwhelmed elim moab again we see this word elim the powerful people of moab yochazem uraad. Trembling is grabbing them. The people of Canaan are melting. Okay, and exactly that exact language is what Rahab says to the spies who come to Yericho when Yehoshua first comes into the land. The same words that they're melted as a result. In other words, what seems to, what the, the confidence that they project, the sense of, uh, of mastery of their environment, the sense of being the, uh, you know, the, the ones in control of their destiny, all of that that they project to you, it's all an illusion. It's all fake because in reality, they're intimidated. May fear and, uh, and dread fall upon the big with the greatness, with the glorification of your arms, of your arm. They will be silent like a Rock. In other words, the idea is that they will not be able to, uh, th- that they'll be silenced by the greatness of God. Ad yavor Hashem, until your nation, Hashem, passes. Ad yavor amzu kanita, until the nation that you have acquired ha- it passes through. And the idea is that, that the, um, 
that the uh, the the concept of kiddush Hashem, that the nations of the world should recognize God's existence, is also a part of the whole story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. From the very beginning, Hashem wanted the Egyptians to recognize God and to do teshuvah, to correct their ways, to mend their ways, to exercise their free choice. It wasn't the ideal for them to be forced into releasing the Jews. It would have been better had they come around to that understanding on their own and recognized God on their own. They didn't. But still, all human beings are God's children. All human beings are uh, creatures of God. And God wants every human being to achieve his or her full potential, which would involve, of course, a knowledge of God and, and being able to be close to God. And so that's something that's desired for all people. And so the idea that all nations of the world would learn from these events is really what, what is hoped for in the Torah. What is hoped for uh, by the Jewish people is that the nations of the world should see this and recognize it and have your shamayim. Fear here is not, doesn't mean that they should be paralyzed and non-functional. What it means is that they should have a sense of awe and reverence for God and begin to develop a curiosity and a desire to understand more about God. That's what it's supposed to accomplish, all of this, uh, this whole spectacle here. So they will be silenced from all of their chatter, meaning they will, all their talk about their own greatness and all of their plans, all of their achievements and accomplishments, and uh, all of their glorification of their own deeds until your nation will pass, the nation that you have acquired. In other words, the Jewish people represent God's presence on earth. And the fact that the, the uh, nations of the world will be intimidated, it means that they will recognize that there's a higher plan being played out through the Jewish people and the things that happen to them. Bring them and plant them in your holy mountain or your the mountain of your inheritance. A place for your sitting, a place for your dwelling you have made, Hashem. Hashem the sanctuary of Hashem, your hands have established it. Hashem yimloch leolam va'ed, Hashem will rule forever and ever. So you see from this that the idea of the Mikdash is a semel, it is a representation, a symbol of God's malchut on earth. And that's what it's always spoken of. It's always spoken as if it is a palace um, for the divine presence. That's how it's presented to us, the Mishkan or the Bet HaMikdash a place for your dwelling you've created, a mikdash for your dwelling. In other words, a, the, the, the goal of the Jewish people is to revolutionize the idea of what a society is supposed to be, of what the infrastructure of a society is supposed to be, of what a government is supposed to be, and what the institutions and the buildings uh, of, of, a, uh, of, a, of a community are supposed to be about. Instead of centering on human ambition and the satisfaction of human desire and human uh, uh, ego or human pleasures, they're all going to point to something higher. They're all going to be a vehicle for the acknowledgement and the recognition of God. And, um, and, you're going, and so the idea of, the, of mentioning this here is that we shouldn't see Kriyat Yamsuf as something separate from the ultimate mission of the Jewish people, which is to create the institutions and to and to that will help continue the mission of glorifying God in the world instead of glory, glorifying man, and Hashem uh, Hashem will rule forever and ever, which is the idea that once this mission is accomplished, once the Jewish people reach their goal, they receive the Torah, they establish the institutions that will draw the attention of the world to the to the real Creator. Uh, that will, then Hashem will rule forever and ever. Hashem will be acknowledged as the king forever and ever. Um, and this 
the reason why this new concept of Hashem will rule forever and ever is only first introduced here is I think for two reasons. One is like what I mentioned, that it means that the Jewish people, when they reach that stage of their development, that they create the Beit HaMikdash and Hashem's presence becomes a reality for all the nations of the world, Hashem will rule forever and ever, meaning that the people, the nations of the world will accept God as the master and the king forever. That that's the, uh, that in other words, that from the human perspective, what they're saying is right now, the nations of the world are not convinced that there's one master of the universe, but in the future, they will be. And that will be a, an awareness that lasts forever. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that for the first time, the Jewish people recognize that God's power is limitless, that it's infinite, that these events, um, the complete downfall and obliterate, the obliteration of, of Paro's power, it wasn't just that he fell and he was defeated and probably he'd rebuild. He wasn't going to rebuild. Everything collapsed into the sea. That showed that Hashem is the ultimate uh, is the ultimate master of the universe. And, uh, and it was, it's not just a matter of winning a battle here or a battle there, but there is a, uh, there's an absoluteness to Hashem's malchut and kingship that there's no rival, there's no competition against. And that might be what Hashem yimloch le'olam va'ed means as well, that for the first time, and, the, and in the tefillah we always say that, we always say in the morning and the evening when we read the Bachor of the Kriyat Shema, that, uh, that, that the Jewish people called out at, at Yamsuf, Hashem yimloch le'olam va'ed, Hashem is going to rule forever and ever. We now recognize God as the absolute king of the universe, and there's no competition, there's nothing, uh, there's no one who could contend with him or oppose him. But it also represents, it also reflects the idea of... Um, that in the future, when the Jewish people establish the Beit HaMikdash, this awareness will be perpetuated by the, the, them and their descendants forever. Because when, when the horse of Paro and his chariot and his riders came into the sea, Hashem turned the waters of the sea against them, but the Jewish people walked on the dry land in the midst of the sea, that uh, this seems to be, according to some of the commentaries, I mean, and the way that it's written in our Sifre is part of the song. In other words, this is a conclusion of the, uh, uh, this is the conclusion of the song, that uh, it's going back to the uh, sum up the story that has just been told, that uh, the, the salvation from Paro in this miraculous way. Others interpret it, no, not as a, uh, not as a part of the song itself, but um, that it, it's once again emphasizing when and why they sang the song, but it's not actually a part of the song itself. Either way, the point is that this event was a critical event in bringing to the Jewish people's uh, awareness um, the significance of everything that had happened to them. And whenever we find shira, whenever we find song in Tanakh, it always means that somebody is looking back on certain events with a perspective where everything fits together. Everything, um, something, somehow everything falls into place. David Melech sings a song at the end of his career where all of his experiences, trials, tribulations, salvations, and, and, and successes and failures, everything kind of falls into place. And, and Dvorah has Shirat Dvorah where everything falls into place that she, in her era, in her, uh, you know, all, all the struggles that she faced and all the, all the uh, obstacles that she had to overcome and ultimately the, uh, the, the success at negotiating those, those challenges um, are 
reflected in her song. Her song is a reflecting back and a putting of everything together in, into one perspective, a single perspective that summarizes and integrates all the lessons that should, should have been learned from the events that have gone on. So the Jewish people who have now endured the servitude of Egypt and are now in, about to enjoy the freedom from Egypt are putting that into perspective, are seeing what it really means. What it really means is that ultimately human beings are fooling themselves if they think that they are the masters even of this earth, even of this planet, even of their own lives, their own existence, let alone of the universe. And that um, and the, the enslavement of the Jewish people in Egypt was the ultimate example of the extreme to which human beings go in their belief that they are the ultimate arbiters of truth and source of power. We know that Paro, when he wanted to dissuade the Jewish people from listening to Moshe, said, I don't want you to listen to falsehood. I don't want you to listen to lies. That's why I'm going to give you more work so that you don't listen to the lies of Moshe. In other words, he becomes the arbiter of what is true and false, what is good and bad. Um, and th- this concept that human beings are the measure of all things is what the, what the whole story of Pesach and the whole story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is really trying to work against. And the Kriyat Yamsuf, the falling of the Egyptians into the sea, and the emergence of the Jews on their path to receiving the Torah and ultimately to building the Beit HaMikdash, which is how the song describes it. The song describes it not just that they were saved from their enemies, but they're on their way to do something great. It's, it's describing them as on their way somewhere positive, not just as having been finally freed from their oppressors and their masters, but that, they were, that they're on their way to receive the Torah, they're on their way to create the Beit HaMikdash, they're on their way to fulfill their mission of, uh, of sanctifying God's name. That's what the Shira is describing them as doing in these glowing terms, and that's why it concludes with that as the aspect um, you know, to be emphasized when we say Hashem Yuloch Le'olam Ba'ed, that that's the, that's the real goal. That was the real objective of all of it. And if we look back in the Torah, we see when Hashem originally told Avraham Avinu that your descendants are going to be enslaved in, in a, a nation that is not, in a land that is not their own, and eventually they're going to be uh, released from there, and uh, I'm going to judge that people, and I'm going to release them, and they're going to be released with lots of wealth. The implication is that through some social upheaval, through some injustice, of human beings against them, they would come to see the ultimate source of justice which is, and the ultimate source of order in the world, which is uh, from Hashem and not from uh, human beings or human institutions. And of course, the goal would have been for Paro to acknowledge that, but in that, uh, that didn't happen. But at the very least, through the experience of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the Jewish people came to this understanding. And um, that's really what Shiratayam, I think, is about. It's about putting all of these pieces together, seeing what the ultimate goal of the experience of servitude in Egypt and release from that servitude was meant to teach them. And not just seeing the freedom from Egypt, but seeing that this ennobles them and and raises them up, prepares them along the way to accomplish their sacred mission, which is going to be receiving the Torah and ultimately building the Mishkan and would have ultimately after that been building the Beit HaMikdash, but we all know that that ends up being delayed a while. Now, the one last thing I wanted to mention was about the Parashat Haman. I know there's a lot to talk about, but in the discussion of, it's important to note, and once we see this, that there is a, there's an emphasis in Shirat Yam on downplaying human greatness and power and emphasizing and uh, drawing attention to and highlighting God's role in the order of the creation and in the, the ad- addressing of 
and satisfying of our needs and in guiding us. That's the emphasis in the song. Now, when the Jewish people uh, uh, complain, one of the things that is, is, is critical is that they always initially complain to Moshe Rabbeinu. They came to Moshe and they said, what are we going to drink? And that, that was the very first complaint. And then uh, Hashem says, and this is in, uh, in Pasuk Kafvav, Pasuk 26, If you listen to Hashem, the voice of God, and what is straight in his eyes you do, you listen to his mitzvot and you keep his commandments, all of the sickness I placed on Egypt, I will not place on you, I am Hashem, the one who heals you. In other words, the emphasis is if you follow God's design and plan, then only good will happen to you. And they come next, after they come to this, uh, to the first, they come to Elim, and they, uh, and eventually, they come to, uh, to Midbar Sin, and it says there, the people complained, Al Moshe ba Midbar. they complained to Aaron and Moshe, and they said, why, did, why don't you let us die in the hands of God in the land of Egypt? When we had the flesh pots of Egypt, this is already Perek Tedzayin, this is chapter 16, verse 3. You brought us to this desert to kill all of us in, with hunger. And uh, then Hashem tells Moshe that he's going to bring the man. But the interesting thing is that the Jews always first turn to Moshe and blame Moshe for their troubles. Hashem tells Moshe how he's going to provide man, the miraculous food, to the, uh, uh, to, uh, the Jewish people. But notice when, Hash- when Moshe introduces it to the Jewish people, he says, This evening you will know that Hashem is the one that took you out of Egypt. Because what did they always say? Why did you guys, Moshe and Aaron, take us out of Egypt? So Moshe says, no. You all know that Hashem is the one who took us out. And you will also see in the morning that Hashem has heard your complaints. What are we that you complain about us? So you see that Moshe and Aaron are trying to get the focus away from themselves and onto God. The exact opposite of what somebody like Paro would be doing, which would be to increase the extent of people's dependence on him and to increase the, per- the uh, perception, to heighten the perception or to, uh, to try to uh, uh, you know, re- reinforce and encourage the view that he was really the one who should be the center. Uh, when, and again, when Moshe Rabbeinu says it again, he says, when Hashem gives you meat in the evening and bread in the morning and you see that he hears your, your cries, your complaints are not on us, they are on Hashem. Now, it's very interesting. He's not telling them not to complain. He's saying complain, but complain to God. Complain to Hashem. That's how you, because, and he keeps saying, come before Hashem because he's heard your complaints. The emphasis is on the idea that Hashem is the one who is hearing the complaints, not Moshe and Aaron, and that the ire of the people should not be directed towards Moshe and Aaron. But the ire of the people being directed towards Moshe and Aaron is not bad. And I think this is the main point. It's not bad because Moshe and Aaron feel victimized by the Jewish people, or they feel that, oh, we're not appreciated. You know, why are we doing this job? You guys don't treat us well. It's a thankless job. That's not the reason why... Moshe and Aaron are upset that the people are blaming them. People read the story and they say, oh, well, Moshe and Aaron are defending themselves. They're saying, no, we didn't, it wasn't our idea to come here. It was God's idea. Why are you blaming us? As if they're trying to shift the blame. No, it's not shifting the blame. 
It's the opposite. They're saying, no, complain to the right address. Because the first step is to recognize who is really the one running the show. And if you still think it's Moshe Naron, then you haven't really moved out of the Egyptian mentality. The Egyptian mentality was that human beings are the ones running the world. Now you've just shifted your, your sense that the person running the world is Paro. Now you think the person running the world is Moshe. That's not any better. Okay, obviously he would be a better person to be the leader, but that's, not, that's still just as much in not recognizing God as the one running the world. And so therefore Moshe say, keeps saying, no, it's God, it's God. It's not me. And later on when they, when they complain about water, he says again, they said to Moshe, give us water so we could drink. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, and this is in chapter 17, verse 2, he says, Why are you fighting with me? Why are you testing God? Okay? In other words, he, he says again and again, he reframes the discussion again and again as about Hashem, not about uh, himself, not about Aaron. That's the emphasis. And of course, the end, it says, they called the place Masal Moiva because of the complaints of the people and their testing of God saying, is God really with us or not? They were constantly testing, but because they wanted some physical thing to hang on to. They needed some miracle, some evident uh, uh, intervention by God constantly to reinforce their sense that Hashem was with them. Otherwise, they couldn't deal with it. And that came from their habituation in Egypt to seeing power and, and gain, gaining a sense of security from the, the physical presence of the paro, from the palaces of the paro, from the, uh, from the concrete uh, expressions of Egyptian power and Egyptian might. That's what normally gave them security. So that's what they needed again and again from God. But that's not what Hashem wants them to have. Hashem wants them to have a sense of trust in the abstract idea of God. And that's why when, when they would get the man, it would spoil every night. Because if they had, they could collect man and hoard it. So then their sense of confidence and security would come from hoarding of the man. So it's spoiled every night. And then in the morning, they would have to go get it again. They would have to, they would have to eat everything, not leave over anything because they were trusting in God. They weren't trusting in the food that they had in their hand and the concrete sign of God's intervention. They were trusting in God himself. And that also, of course, led to when it was Shabbat, getting a double portion and not going out to collect anything. Because the idea was, again, when we're following the will of God, that's when we're able to be sustained. When we are not, when we're running contrary to the will of God, then we're not going to be able to be sustained. And we can't put our faith and our trust in any material thing. That was what the man was really uh, supposed to, one, or one of the key things the man was supposed to teach them. And that's why it says, I'm going to teach, I'm going to test them. Will they walk in my Torah or not? So one way to read that about the man is what it means. I want to test them if they're going to walk in the Torah or not is because this is like a test case to see if they'll follow rules. If they're going to follow rules about the man, then maybe they'll follow other rules. But I think it's something more fundamental than that. Will they believe that there is a, that by following a system of principles and ideas that come from God, they can be successful even when they don't see the immediate physical manifestation and, and concrete expression of God's presence? Will they trust that in the principles, in the ideas that Hashem teaches them, that if they live by those ideals and those principles, that they'll be able to be successful and they'll be able to prevail? That's the ultimate test. Now, I wanted to mention that because there is a concept of parashat aman, of reading the section in Bishalach, Really, it's, it's uh, Aliyot Hamishi um, and Shishi uh, are the, the two Aliyot that, that overlap. 
the story of the man. There is, and many Sidurim have the parashat Haman in it because, um, because the Talmud Yerushalmi says that a person who reads the parashat Haman every day will be promised to have par- parnasa. And so people take that as a sugulan. Some people only read it on the week of Parashat Bishalach, but actually the Talmud Yerushalmi says read it every day, so it's found in many Sidurim. But what does it mean that reading that will give you Parnasah every day? So if that's true, so a person could be totally evil, uh, totally wicked and corrupt, do whatever they want, but just read the Parashat Haman every morning and God will provide them with a uh, sustenance. That, that, that seems like an, a, a small price to pay for a decent sustenance and you can do whatever you want the rest of the time. But that can't be what it means. See, what it what, what really it's trying to get at with Parashat Haman is that a person who internalizes the ideas of Parashat Haman, that your, which, are two, which really are, is the idea that your sustenance and your Parnasah come from God, they don't come from a specific concrete source. And we talked about this during last year, during Pesach, when we first started Zoom classes and we learned Shara Bitachon of Rabinu, uh, uh, the Shara Bitachon of the Chovat Levavot. Chovot levavot, rather. When we learned the Chovot levavot, we learned Shara Bitachon about trusting in God. We talked about this idea that trust in God means not attachment to a specific job or a specific modality or specific means of providing sustenance. It means that recognition that God has infinite ways of providing sustenance. Sometimes I have to adapt in order to find the other way that God has in store for me. It won't be exactly the way that I wanted it or I expected it or I would have preferred or what I, what I wanted, what, what, you know, what I planned for or anything like that. But it's always there if a person's willing to think outside of the box and isn't attached to conventional forms of receiving sustenance. And that's what the man was, the ultimate unconventional form of receiving sustenance. So the, uh, the idea that a person re- thinks outside the box of the conventional and recognizes that God has an infinite uh, number of vehicles through which to provide us with sustenance and therefore can trust in God and know that there always will be a way that Hashem can provide us with what we need even though it might not be through the instruments and the vehicles that we expect or want or desire or prefer. That's the idea of the Parashat Haman. That's number one. And number two, that Hashem sustains us in order that we can achieve a higher purpose, not just to keep us alive, not to survive, but to live, which means to be able to accomplish some transcendent purpose. And that's why the man is also tied to Shabbat, the idea that Hashem provides us with enough, not only to live physically, but enough to have a Shabbat and be able to use our parnasah for a higher purpose. And so that's the idea. Reading Parashat Haman every day means that the person's attitude towards their Parnasah is shaped by the Parashat Haman. That they see the, uh, the way which they see the conventional means, let's say the salary that they receive or the business that they are in or whatever it is that they do to obtain a Parnasah, they see the conventional mechanism, but they recognize behind that is a system much vaster than that that uh, is responsible for the provision of sustenance that comes from God. And that if it were not this vehicle, it would be another vehicle. If it were not this particular pipeline, it would be another one. That's the attitude of the, of the person who's reading Parashat Haman, because ultimately the goal of Parnasah is to enable us to live as human beings, not just to survive physically, but to have Shabbat, to be able to utilize the Parnasah, the material things in the service of Hashem and recognition of Hashem. So that's the, that, that attitude totally changes and of course it guarantees that the person will find Parnasah because it's a totally different attitude. The person who's not able to find Parnasah is because they're limited as we talked about in Chobot HaLevavot. They're limited in their perspective. That's what blocks them from being able to see the opportunities that are there and, um, and that's exactly what we learned 
learned about in, in Sharab Bitachon about a year ago, last Pesach. But the, um, it's, this is the lesson of the Parashat Taman. It's similar to where it says a person who says Ashrei every day. If a person says Ashrei three times a day, they're going to get Olam Abba. How could that be? So Talmidei Rabbeinu Yonah, in the back of the Talmud, Masachet Bachot, they explain, the students of Rabbeinu Yonah explain, it doesn't mean just saying the words of Ashrei three times as a magical amulet is going to give you a long life. What it, or is going to give you olam haba. What it means is if the person lives by the words of Ashrei, reading it every day three times a day means it's part of who you are. It's part of your identity. That's the way that you, uh, that you live your life, that your life is lived constantly in awareness of God and praise of God and recognition of God and, and, and raising other people's awareness of God. A person who lives like that, of course, they're going to be uh, a candidate for Olam Haba. So the idea of reading something every day shouldn't be taken as a magical amulet or magical um, uh, incantation to force God to give you what you want. But it's actually, what it means is to internalize these ideas and these perspectives so that you live in a way that leads you to that desired objective. So I wanted to point that out because I think there's a great value in reading Parashat Haman for sure. And as the Talmud even says, Talmud Yerushalmi says, reading it every day and then reading Ashrei. But we shouldn't think that they have a magical effect. The effect is when we internalize the ideas that are embodied in those, uh, in those parashiyot and really think about them and make them a part of how we live our lives. So thank you everyone for joining. It's great seeing you from a distance.